Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. So I will start my lecture with a disclaimer, uh, if you will. I'm not, as I said earlier, an acad- academician, um, but my expertise comes from my experience, and I have 43 years of practicing as a perfusionist, much like you, Jim. You may not have 43 years. You're a little younger than I am, but you have a lot of years. Collectively, you and I have a an entire century's worth of, of experience here, right? Uh, we're pretty Just close to it. it. Yeah, pretty yeah. close to it. So, you know, and I tend to be... Um, although I respect and I value tremendously um, scientific evidence-based medicine, I tend to lean towards the more pragmatic approach. I don't need a study to tell me that the patient is in renal failure. I don't need a study to tell me that the patient is blue because I can see it with my own eyes, right? And that's sort of how I tend to practice and operate is from, I know this happens. I'm not exactly sure why it happens, but I know it happens. And I know you that if I do- You get a feel for it. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry? You get a feel for it. A- absolutely. I think that's my, I mean, I think that mm-hmm. is my strength. My strength is clinical capability. That's really where my strength comes in. And seeing a, a patient presentation and being able to sort of distill down what's wrong here. Um, and, uh, you know, I, we live in cardiac surgery. Cardiac surgery tends to be reactive. We tend to do something um, and we sort of, I think, scoff a little bit and laugh at a little bit at the really smart people, nothing personal, who sit and, you know, contemplate, hand-wringing <laughs> contemplation. In cardiac surgery, you just don't have that. Everything is very dynamic and happening very quickly. <laughs> and you just have to make very quick decisions. Yeah. Uh, about what's going on. So I tend to be somewhat pragmatic, as I said. So my, my talk is, what is AKI and what is ARF? So you have acute kidney injury and acute renal failure. So the classic definition, if you will, what has been reported in the literature is the rifle criteria, and it spells it out there on the left. It's one of those mnemonics, risk, injury, failure, loss, and then end-stage kidney or uh, end-stage renal disease, either one. And you have two specific sets of criteria, and one is GFR and one is urine output. And if you look further to the right, you'll see that you have Risk and injury are very sensitive, high sensitivity, and in the failure, loss, and end stage, it's highly specific. And if you have an increase in your serum serum creatinine by 1.5 or a decrease in GFR, 
by 25%, greater than 25%, you're considered at risk. And the urine output criteria for that same risk, it's a urine output of less than a half a milliliter per kilogram per hour times six hours, you are at risk. Injury, a creatinine bump of two times or decrease of 50% or greater of uh, your uh, GFR or a urine output of less than five milliliters per kilogram or 0.5 milliliters per kilogram per hour times 12 hours. And then failure is a serum creatinine increase of three. Um, and you can look through the rest of that there and figure it all out. The thing about the risk and injury phase of this is what we discussed earlier, and I think it's a very important thing to consider, is many times in the acute phase, we are doing things that can mask risk or injury and not realize that this patient has a renal deficit, and that's because our methodology may not be that great. You can dilute the serum, creat serum creatinine and be tricked into believing that the patient is really okay, because if that's changing, then your GFR calculation is going to be changed as well. If it's urine output criteria, uh, well, you know, you could be at 0.6 or 0.7 milliliters per kilogram per hour for six hours and not fit the criteria. That doesn't mean you don't really have a problem. In the STS, <coughs> excuse me, which is the Society of Thoracic Surgeons, renal failure is uh, indicate whether the patient had acute or worsening renal failure resulting in one or more of the following criteria. Increase of serum creatinine uh, greater than two or a two times increase in the most recent preoperative creatinine level uh, or there is a new requirement for dialysis postoperatively. So that's how the STS defines renal failure, and that's what goes in the reporting that then goes and comes back as to where you are graded. AKI cardiac surgery, what are the frequencies and causes? In this article, and this is going back all the way to 2006 in Clinical Journal of American Society of Nephrology, and I've alluded to this several times today, uh, acute renal failure occurs in up to 30% of patients who undergo cardiac surgery with dialysis being required in approximately 1% of all those patients. Uh, now, some say a little higher than that, but when I say dialysis, I don't necessarily only mean intermittent dialysis. I mean any form of renal replacement therapy uh, would qualify as dialysis for the, uh, uh, in, the, uh, in the context of this lecture and that patient population. Uh, obviously, they go on to say that, uh, that ARF is uh, associated with substantial increase in morbidity and mortality independent of all other factors. So everything else could be perfect, but if the patient develops uh, AKI, especially uh, acute renal failure, their morbidity and mortality go up significantly. There's multiple pathways, hemodynamic, inflammatory, nephrotoxic factors, all of these involved and overlap each other when it comes to uh, causes of kidney injury. 
Uh, there's been a lot of studies looking at this, though nothing really definitive, and they have tried to come up with various strategies, uh, several compounds such as atrial natriuretic peptide and N-acetylcysteine to have shown promise, but really have never uh, become in the mainstream with what we do. And I know I saw, Tammy, you brought up NGAL as a marker of acute kidney injury, but that is not something that is routinely used. We still use serum creatinine, which can be very delayed and not necessarily as specific as you need it to be. NGAL is a much better marker, but not widely used. I don't think we use it clinically anywhere that we work. So it's never become, having something that has tremendously high sensitivity to tell you there is actually kidney injury here um, doesn't really exist in the clinical world. But then there's also the problem of what do we do about it when we see it? And sometimes we do, in fact, a lot of times, in my perspective, opinion, we do nothing. Not sure what your thoughts are, but those are my thoughts. I do want to read this to you because this comes from uh, O'Neill, uh, and this was published in 2016, and I think it's very important. Acute kidney injury complicates recovery from cardiac surgery, and again, in up to 30% of patients. So here we are 10 years later with the same exact incidence rate of acute kidney injury. Uh, and it impairs, of course, the function of the brain, lungs. We know that there's a tremendous amount of crosstalk between the kidneys and the brain, the kidneys and the lung, the kidneys and the heart. Every, they, all of these organs talk to each other. And uh, there was a, a, I don't know if you knew Dr. Hunkos or not. He was down at, you knew, doc, you know Dr. Luis Hunkos? Yeah, extremely, yeah, okay. Really, really super, the younger one, the super bright, super bright guy. Um, but he showed in his lab <coughs> that just by clamping the renal artery, you increase, <coughs> excuse me, you increase lung water tremendously. That's just by clamping the renal artery. And so, um, uh, you know, there's a tremendous amount, as I said, of crosstalk. Um, renal ischemia, reperfusion injury, inflammatory, hemolysis, oxidative stress, cholesterol emboli, probably atheroma emboli, to all toxins contribute to this development and progression of AKI. Uh, preventive strategies are limited. I completely agree with that, but current evidence supports maintenance of renal perfusion and intravascular volume while avoiding venous congestion. Administration of balanced salt solutions, something that Dr. Navarre talked about, as opposed to high chloride intravenous fluids, and the avoidance of limitations of cardiopulmonary bypass exposure. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about that because that's controversial. AKI that requires renal replacement therapy occurs in 2 to 5% of patients following cardiac surgery and is associated with a 50% mortality. Not at all surprising. And I think that this difference is that they took into consideration not just coronaries, as the previous study which showed a 1%, but coronaries, valves, combined procedures, and others. So it also has to do with age, uh, as uh, we've alluded to in some of the previous lectures. Um, cardiac surgery continues to be a popular clinical model. 
uh, to evaluate some of these therapeutics and off-label use of medications, non-pharmacologic treatments for AKI, uh, since cardiac surgery is a common operation now, and uh, typically it's elective and provides a relative standardization, which I agree with all of this. Again, though, my issue is this next slide, and uh, there's the slide you stole from me, Tabby. There's my slide. Okay, there it is. Uh, and of course, this is from the same study. It's, it's the next slide, I think. But this shows some of those mechanisms. You have hemolysis, plasma-free hemoglobin. It acts as a vasoconstrictor. You have catecholamines. You have reactive oxygen species, lep, uh, lipid per, uh, peroxidation. You have leukocyte recruitment, inflama inflammation, atheroembolism, all of the ischemia, hypoperfusion, all of these things are contributors to the acute kidney injury paradigm. Uh, when we look at risk factors, this is from the same study, uh, the, uh, the risk factors for the development of acute kidney injury, and I highlighted following cardiac surgery because I don't think it's following cardiac surgery. I think that that's when we find out about it. The injury is occurring before the following part uh, ever exists. But preoperatively advanced age, female gender, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and I'm assuming female gender because most of the time females are smaller and you have a higher incidence of hemodilutional anemia. Hyperlipidemia, previous chronic kidney disease is a huge factor. Liver disease, PVD, uh, previous stroke, smoking history, diabetes, very, very, very uh, significant in its contribution. And of course, preoperative anemia, which is going to lead to <laughs> perioperative serious anemia and probably the need for transfusions. Intraoperatively, complex surgery. The longer the cases, the more acute kidney injury we see. The use of cardiopulmonary bypass and its duration in particular need to return to CPB, meaning you had a failure to wean and you were using rocket fuel, and that has tremendous impact on renal function. Low hematocrit or anemia during CPB, aortic cross clamp time, hypoperfusion. Uh, I think that happens way more often than we give it credit for, but I don't think it's because we don't flow enough. I think we don't deliver enough oxygen, and I'll explain that in my future slides. Hypovolemia, venous congestion, which is not that common intraoperatively unless you're doing the case off pump, then it can be a real problem. And if you uh, uh, occlude the venous return from the inferior portion of the body, the IVC coming out of the kidneys, you increase the resistance to flow through them, you will decrease your uh, renal perfusion. Emboli and other, uh, from cholesterol and other, and inotropy exposure. Postoperatively, vasopressors, inotropy, diuretic uh, exposure. Of course, Lasix, Lasix is nephrotoxic, but we have no problem giving it and giving it and giving it. Uh, blood transfusions, anemia, hypovolemia, venous congestion from, let's say, right heart failure, uh, and of course, cardiogenic shock for obvious reasons. Now, let's fast forward to 2020. Now we're 14 years into this. 
and it goes before this actually. So I started in 2006. I could have started in 1996. I could have started in 1986. Acute kidney injury following on pump or off pump coronary artery bypass grafting in elderly patients. This is a retrospective propensity score matching analysis. And here we see acute kidney injury. It's a sudden loss of kidney function defined by an acute increase in serum creatinine concentration and decrease in urine output. Up to 30% of patients. So we have made zero progress, um, zero. And approximately 2% require uh, de novo dialysis of some sort. Postoperative AKI is associated with increased short and long-term morbidity and mortality. We all know that. It also goes on to talk about the multifactorial uh, uh, causes of AKI and ARF. Their conclusions for elderly patients, and this makes sense, it was one of the previous studies, preoperative risk factors. For elderly patients, AKI was coming common, but deterioration of dialysis was seldom incidence. Comparing with on-pump versus off-pump did not decrease the rates of severity of AKI, long-term new onset of dialysis, or mortality. AKI was associated with increased long-term new onset of dialysis and decreased long-term survival. Okay, so we know all of that, but their conclusion in their study was that there was no difference between on-pump and off-pump, but elderly patients were much more prone to AKI. All of that, I think, we have known and continue to know for the past several decades. So what do we actually know? Well, we know that AKI occurs up to 30% of all cases because I only took out three studies, but I, if I go and pull 15 studies, or 20 studies, or 30 studies, it's all going to say the same thing. AKI rates are, in my perspective, unacceptably high in cardiac surgery. And that's not to say it's that they don't recover, but again, they might recover. They might not need uh, dialysis. They may not go on to have end-stage kidney disease. However, we don't really know, because I could not find anything in the data to tell me, we don't really know the consequence of that AKI on that patient in five and 10 years down the road. I think it could be significant, but we just simply do not know. That's conjecture. Short-term clinically significant AKI occurs 1% to 5% of the time, depending on the type of procedure, risk factors preoperatively, et cetera, length of time on bypass, need for inotropy support, all of that stuff. AKI requiring de novo dialysis ranges from 0.3% to 2%, depending on which paper you read. Long-term effects of AKI, no matter its degree, is not fully known. AKI of any degree increases costs significantly because every patient that develops AKI, which is about 30%, have a longer length of stay, that longer time to extubation, longer stay in the ICU, longer stay in the hospital. All of those things cost money. Uh, AKI of any degree increases costs. 
AKI leading to ARF is deadly. Older patients with pre-existing CKD are more at risk significantly. Complexity of case and duration of CPB are a major contributor. There exists many causes of AKI. We've been through them. I want to go over them one more time. Inflammatory, embolic, nephrotoxicity, hypoperfusion. Again, I'm going to uh, really drill on that because I think we tr underappreciate the degree to which we hypoperfuse the kidney. Physiologic uh, and physiologic alterations, which both Dr. Navar and uh, Dr. Kuthani discussed in their lectures that going on cardiopulmonary bypass and having heart surgery in general is a very challenging physiologic environment for the kidney with a whole lot of things interacting that it's just not intended for. And it causes a, I believe I would, I would, I would uh, describe it as a hostile, a renally hostile environment when you have cardiac surgery uh, as a whole, but especially with cardiopulmonary bypass, hemodilution, hypothermia, all the things that you talked about that are negatively impacting uh, the uh, kidneys. So what I wanna show you here, and I'll uh, point to this stuff. Uh, do we have sound? Yeah, there you go. So now you see them going on bypass on the left. All of these are happening simultaneously. So that's the patient monitor. That's the bypass machine. You see the heart. And I'm going to play it a couple of times and describe everything that we're looking at here. I'm sorry. Oh, it's hard to see here. Can you see it here? I better? Okay. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm going to start it over again. Okay? So we're going to play this over again. So you see the heart nice and full. That's, I'm going to pause it just for a second. So I want you to see is, if you look over here, the perfusionist, Becky, has her hand, and she's opening this clamp. This clamp is connected to this line, and this is the venous line. That's going to be this that you see right here. The monitor is, speaks for itself. The CVP was not 280. The CVP was actually on this patient seven. However, the line stopped working. Either they were giving something through it or it got kinked or whatever it was. But you see the blood pressure, the heart rate 84. You see the blood pressure 106 over 56. So that's going to be a pulse pressure of 50 millimeters of mercury, right? We agree with that. So this is the venous reservoir that you see here. This venous reservoir, when she opens this clamp and drains this heart, is going to fill up with blood. And this heart is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. So that's kind of the scene that you have to look at because we're going to drain it when we do that. Here's the right ventricle, right? This is the pulmonary artery. This is the aorta. This is the right atrium. Yes, this is the right ventricle. So generally speaking, anteriorly is the right ventricle. The LAD is over here behind what is the reflection of the pericardium, and that separates the right atrium from the left ventricle. I mean, the right ventricle from the left ventricle. The interventricular sulcus is right around here where I'm drawing. Um, so this is the right ventricle that you're seeing here. Right atrium, pulmonary artery, aorta. The aortic cannula is here, okay? So I'm going to go back. Let's watch that again. Okay, cool. What's going on? 
You see the level in the oxygenator coming up, 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 draining. She's opened up. She's going up on her flow now, which was only zero. Now it's going up. It's almost to four liters. You see the right ventricle now completely collapsed. You see the right atrium start. I mean, the right ventricle collapsed, and you see the right atrium also collapsed and starting to luff where the, the uh, atrium is so empty it's collapsing around the tube. And then if you look down here, you see that our blood pressure has gone from a nice pulsatile pressure to a continuous pressure. So I'll play it one more time so we can see that again. Then I'll pause it in a couple of places. He said, go on bypass, so I paused it. So she's opened this clamp, okay? This reservoir is gonna fill with volume. Simultaneously to that, this atrium right here and this ventricle right here are going to start getting smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. This blood pressure that you see here is going to go from this pulsatility to a continuous flow. Mm -hmm. You're also going to see the heart with some ectopy, and it's going to become a little bit tachycardic, uh, but that'll settle down after a minute. And then as soon as she moves over in this area here, you're going to see a little box with a dial on it, and it's, you're going to see her increasing the flow so that this blood that's filling the reservoir gets thrown, put through the oxygenator and back up. But I want you to also notice this oxygenator is nice and clear because it's got crystalloid in it, and it's going to have blood. So let me erase all of those marks, mm -hmm. and let's watch that from the beginning. Here it goes. Now she's going to her going up on the flow. The reservoir is full. The heart is empty. The blood pressure has gone to a more continuous flow. So you've lost your pulsatility. So it's coming from here. So it's draining from here, the right atrium. Yes, going down this line into this venous reservoir. It comes out of the venous reservoir into this pump, out of the pump into the oxygenator, out of the oxygenator, and back up as now arterialized blood and goes into the aorta. So right atrium, through the perfusion circuit, into the ascending aorta. Is the aorta clamp? Not yet. Not yet. But it's going to be clamped right there so now you have a heart that is clamped it's had cardioplegia administered to it you can see that the R, the heart is completely empty the rv is clefted the right atrium is completely collapsed the pulmonary it's artery still it's still draining of course it's yes because it's coming back through the svc ivc yes it's still draining correct so in this situation. Here's our venous, here's our arterials coming up here, and it's right there, okay? The venous reservoir, this is representing it, has 3,500 cc's of volume in it and a hemoglobin of seven. The blood flow is four liters per minute. So it's four liters going this way, four liters coming this way. So now arterialized blood going into the aorta. Mm -hmm. If I hemoconcentrate... 2,000 cc's out of that reservoir, 
The reservoir will have 1,500 mLs with a hemoglobin of 10, but I will have taken off 2,000 of either urine or ultrafiltrate. Doesn't matter which. I could diurese the patient if they'll pee. They probably won't. Or I can use a hemoconcentrator and remove that volume right there. Okay? Just gone. This will remain the same. This won't change. The flow is still going to be four liters. The heart is still going to be empty. And of course, if the heart is that empty, I, I'm not going to be able to put flow five liters. I can't flow five liters. There's not enough venous return. It'll collapse the atrium and it'll suck the hole into the holes mm -hmm. of the cannula. So you can only flow what the size of this cannula and how much volume that venous capacitance system has. So as the venous capacitance system decreases, you'll, you're, if you drain the patient, exsanguinated the patient, you would have no flow. You're only emptying the heart. But if I take this volume off, I've increased my hemoglobin by 10. And here is why this matters. And Jim, this is very, I think, really something that um, uh, you, would, uh, you would agree with. If I take the previous example with the hemoglobin of seven, I would have a uh, arterial oxygen content of 9.83 milliliters per deciliter. And that would give me a DO2 at that flow of four liters of 393. I need five, I'm sorry. Oh, yes. I need a, that's DO2, not DO2I. I need an index of 5.4 liters per minute uh, at that hemoglobin to reach a DO2 of 750. So by increasing my hemoglobin, I increase, I'm sorry, so if the hemoglobin remains seven, my arterial oxygen content will be 9.83. With a hemoglobin of 10, my arterial oxygen content is 13.91. At this flow, I'll either have a DO2 of 393 with a hemoglobin of seven, or I'll have a DO2 of 556 with a hemoglobin of 10. But to reach a DO2 of 750, I would still need 5.4 liters of flow at a hemoglobin of 10. But if I kept my hemoglobin at seven, I would need a flow of 7.7 liters. I'm not getting 7.7 liters out of this pump, no matter how hard I try. Therein lies what I consider to be one of the major problems with uh, how we do cardiac surgery, how we do perfusion for cardiac surgery. I do not think we deliver enough oxygen to the kidney, and that is the, one of the major contributors to postoperative uh, AKI. You were measuring, uh, you were saying something about creatinine and um, urine flow. Do, do, do you take uh, stat urine, stat urine, con urine sodium concentrations? I do not, but she is the clinical ICU person. Yeah. I'm only operating room, so that's a question for you. Not typically. Because when you have low urine flow, 
um, and you have normal transport processes, you're collecting that transport will remove the sodium concentration and lower the sodium concentration, sensing that the patient is in acute renal failure. Uh, if the sodium concentration is, is normal or approximately normal uh, for the blood, and that is uh, around 140, 150, it's not reabsorbing sodium properly, which suggests that there is a transport defect. So you then have uh, evidence for acute tubular necrosis as opposed to uh, vascular-mediated uh, acute renal failure. And I, I was just reading about that not too long ago, that urine sodium concentrations may be uh, coupled with urine flow. Uh, low urine flow means that the patient is, in, uh, is supposed to be retaining fluid, so okay. If that's the case in its normal function, it will, it will reabsorb sodium and give you a very low sodium concentration. Mm -hmm. So it's something worth doing, but it would have to be a stat sodium. So anyway, that, mm -hmm. so I was suggesting it. So, any questions, Jim? Any, any thoughts? thoughts? Well, no, my, my only thought is, is what you just described is the essence of perfusion. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. But yeah. again, m my point is, is that even with a hemoglobin of 10 and a flow of four liters, I still am going to need a flow of 5.4, which may not be achievable in order to just achieve the lowest DO2 that is physiologically uh, appropriate. What has helped for me is I've calculated, uh, I've done my, my calculations based on the DO2I. Well, I mean, we could just take index. the patient's index and go from there. Yeah. But, you know. And, and, mm -hmm. and, but what you're describing is extremely important. And I think, uh, I think a lot of us forget that. Um, that we that we really need to look at the numbers sometimes and see exactly what we're delivering well you know i mean you bring up a very good point i don't think anyone that i know uh measures here you can have you have my slides but i can give you this one um i don't think anybody i know anymore measures cop i don't think any i mean i, I there's a lot of people who don't even bother to run an albumin. I can't tell you how many times I ask, what's this patient's albumin? Uh, we don't know. And you get an albumin back, you get an albumin back, and it's 2.1. And you wonder why the patient looks like the Michelin man. Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, they're swollen. And, you know, of course, when you're talking about taking the drapes off and you see a swollen patient, I can't remember who said this, but it's an extreme, I think it was such a prophetic statement. And of course, when you see that generalized edema, the patient is anasarcic. And the, the uh, statement was that anasarca is not simply a visually displeasing mm -hmm. finding. All of, if you see a patient that looks like that on the outside, all of the organs look like that on the inside. Mm -hmm. And of course, with that much edema, third spacing, you're going to have 
the uh, the 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 parenchyma of the tissue and all of the microcapillary circulation is going to be grossly disrupted. Mm-hmm. So what what do you think of this? I think the other thing that probably hasn't been taken into account in uh, the 30% not changing is we're operating on patients that are older, sicker. Um, although people are really obese, they're chronically malnourished. Yeah, fair enough. That's a good um, point. And when you look at STS scoring, it doesn't take any of that stuff into account. It hits, you know, big factors like it goes up significantly for age over 70, um, chronic kidney disease, diabetes, it just lumps as general. Like your patient who has an A1C greater than 12 hmm. compared to your patient with an A1C of seven is going to be put in the same category and you can't account for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of other stuff that goes into that that I think contributes to the 30%, not just that we haven't changed our practice completely. Okay. I mean, I think that's, 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 uh, that's fair. I think that's reasonable as well. That we'd, But notwithstanding that, um, I don't think we really do know the causes. I think the causes, that slide shows the multifactorial uh, reality mm-hmm. of acute kidney injury. You showed some incredible slides, especially the video of the afferent arterial. You showed that microvascular scan um, from um, uh, microvascular. Uh, it's a company out of uh, out of Denmark, I think, that has that mm-hmm. sublingual yeah. microvascular scan. Such an in- incredibly powerful tool to see the microcirculation and how deranged it can become. Um, and I think that, uh, I just think many of these things we don't completely understand by and large, most people, we couldn't do cardiac surgery if it wasn't hard to kill people. Mm -hmm. The fact is, I mean, really people are pretty (laughs) damn durable and they can tolerate a tremendous amount of insult, but I feel like we don't see the kidney, the heart we see again. The patient, you know, has a hemiparesis. That's really bad and it's very obvious, but we don't see the kidney. I think that it is, as I said many times, one of the most underappreciated organs until it doesn't work right. And then all of a sudden it's, oh my God. We don't do a lot of, of, of protective strategies which I think we could do a little bit better with. We haven't even talked about ultrafiltration. We haven't even talked about continuous veno-veno-hemofiltration and how we do it. We have, you brought up priming solutions. I think we should be using bicarb-based solutions, not acetate-based solutions uh, like sodium chloride. I think we should be using, you know, uh, uh, like the, um, uh, the uh, uh, dialysis solutions that are used for continuous dialysis like Prismasol or the Braun fluid or the next stage fluid or Duosol, whatever the names are that they use. Um, I think those bicarb-based solutions are much better because you don't dilute down the bicarb, you don't have the acidosis from the fluid resuscitation or from the perfusion prime. And of course, I think ultrafiltration, more aggressive ultrafiltration is a good thing, not a bad thing. Uh, I think that having drier, I think drier patients do better. 
not desiccated, drier patients do better. And I think that to say ultrafiltrating that two liters of fluid off of that reservoir is a cause of AKI is absurd. But people say it. And so then you have overly hemodilute patients and an even lower DO2 or DO2I um, than you had previously. And that fluid has to go somewhere. It's either going to stay in the reservoir or it's going to third space or it's going to get sent to the cell saver and you're going to lose all of the platelets and plasma and proteins and everything else and give the red blood cells back and that's okay we don't there's not a lot of very good um universal understanding of what it is we do we really have tremendously diverse techniques in perfusion in the same community much less across multiple communities Right, I would agree, and I just want to mention a point that Kim reminded me of. I've had the opportunity to work at hospitals where, let's say that the patient has had more of an access to healthcare prior to them coming to the operating room for their heart surgery, mm -hmm. as opposed to patients who live in a demographic where they don't have access to healthcare. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you, the patient populations and what we have to deal with at those two spectrums are very different. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Um, and so that is a whole other um, uh, aspect that has to be involved. The patient that you're presented with may have been worked up, may not have been worked up. I've it. The patient has been refer referred to the cardiac surgeon by the cardiologist. There may not even be a primary health care physician involved in this. Mm -hmm. So their whole diabetes management, their whole, all of the other systems may not have even been looked at mm -hmm. before they even come to the operating room. So I think the whole issue of healthcare in general uh, either, either helps us or hurts us sometimes. Understood. I, I agree. And I think that, of course, we just do a we don't do as I mean, we have an end. There's we our health care system in many ways is the envy of the world. However. And with that said, we don't do everything great. Mm -mm. And I think that um, preventative care needs to be something that we focus more on as a society to help us with these challenges for patients as they uh, continue to get uh, aged and they have uh, diseases that are that are genetically they're predisposed to right i agree it's 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 uh it's it's beyond the scope of our talk this afternoon clearly but, there are, <laughs> but it's uh, fun but, uh, <laughs> yeah so, um, but, um, you know, we just do, a, we just do our best. And what helps us is discussions like this to kind of reiterate some of the points that, you know, sometimes we may forget or sometimes we may overlook. And so uh, that's the benefit of having these discussions here, like we're having this afternoon. 
Absolutely. Let's all treat the whole patient. Mm -hmm. Let's show the yeah. kidneys some love. Yes. <laughs>